0: Portmanteau. Tonight, we'll read The Million Dollar Bond Robbery, a short story written by Agatha Christie and published in 1924 as part of her Poirot Investigates series. In this story, a million dollars of bonds disappear from under a young man's nose, and he is being held accountable. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen to our first Poirot story, The Western Star, which aired in June of 2022, and The Cheap Flat, which aired in August of the same year. By the way, a portmanteau has two meanings. One is the way it is used in this story, a large suitcase or trunk that opens into two equal parts. The other way is as a word that blends the sounds and combining the meanings of two others. For example, motel, which combines motor and hotel, podcast, which combines iPod with broadcast, or of course, snoozecast, which contains getting cozy with bedtime. there have been lately. I observed, one morning, laying aside the newspaper, Perrault, let us forsake the science of detection and take to the crime instead. You are on the, how do you say it, get-rich-quick-tuck, eh, mon ami? Well, look at this last coup, the million dollars worth of liberty bonds which the London and Scottish Bank were sending to New York and which disappeared in such a remarkable manner on board the Olympia. If it were not for the Mont de Meux, or so you say, seasickness, I should delight to voyage myself on one of these big liners, murmured Poirot dreamily. Yes, indeed, I said enthusiastically, some of them must be perfect palaces, the swimming baths, the lounges, the restaurant, the palm courts. Really, it must be hard to believe that one is on the sea. Me? I always know when I am on the sea, said Poirot, sadly. And all those bigatelles that you enumerate, they say nothing to me. But, my friend, consider for a moment the geniuses that travel as it were incognito on board these floating palaces, as you so justly call them, one would meet the elite, the haute noblesse of the criminal world. I laughed. So, that's the way your enthusiasm runs. You would have liked to cross swords with the man who sneaked the liberty bonds. The landlady interrupted us, Young lady as wants to see you, Mr. Poirot. Here's her card. The card bore the inscription, Miss Esme Farquhar, and Poirot, after diving under the table to retrieve a stray crumb and putting it carefully in the waste paper basket, nodded to the landlady to admit her. In another minute, one of the most charming girls I have ever seen was ushered into the room. She was perhaps about five and twenty, with big brown eyes. She was well-dressed and perfectly composed in manner. Sit down, I beg of you, mademoiselle. This is my friend, Captain Hastings, who aids me in my little problems. I'm afraid it is a big problem I have brought you today, Monsieur Perrault, said the girl, giving me a pleasant bow as she seated herself. I dare say you have read about it in the papers. I am referring to the theft of liberty bonds on the Olympia. Some astonishment must have shown itself on Perrault's face, for she continued quickly. You are doubtless asking yourself what I have to do with a grave institution like the London and Scottish Bank. In one sense, nothing. In another sense, everything. You see, Monsieur Perrault, I am engaged to Mr. Philip Ridgway. Aha, and Mr. Ridgway was in charge of the bonds when they were stolen. Of course, no actual blame can attach to him. It was not his fault in any way. Nevertheless, he is half distraught over the matter, and his uncle, I know, insists that he must carelessly have mentioned having them in his possession. It is a terrible setback in his career. Who is his uncle? Mr. Vavasor, Joint General Manager of the London and Scottish Bank. Suppose, Miss Farquhar, that you recount to me the whole story. Very well. As you know, the bank wished to extend their credits in America and for this purpose decided to send over a million dollars in Liberty Bonds. Mr. Vavasor selected his nephew, who had occupied a position of trust in the bank for many years and who was conversant with all the details of the bank's dealings in New York to make the trip. The Olympia sailed from Liverpool on the 23rd, and the bonds were handed over to Philip on the morning of that day by Mr. Vavasor and Mr. Shaw, the two joint general managers of the London and Scottish Bank. They were counted, enclosed in a package, and sealed in his presence, and he then locked the package, at once, in his portmanteau. A portmanteau with an ordinary lock? No, Mr. Shaw insisted on a special lock being fitted to it by hubs. Philip, as I say, Placed the package at the bottom of the trunk. It was stolen just a few hours before reaching New York. A rigorous search of the whole ship was made, but without result, the bonds seemed literally to have vanished into thin air. Poirot made a grimace. But they did not vanish absolutely since I gather that they were sold in small parcels within half an hour of the docking of the Olympia. Well, undoubtedly the next thing is for me to see Mr. Ridgeway. I was about to suggest that you should lunch with me at the Cheshire Cheese. Philip will be there. He is meeting me, but does not yet know that I have been consulting you on his behalf. We agreed to this suggestion readily enough and drove there in a taxi. Mr. Philip Ridgway was there before us and looked somewhat surprised to see his fiancée arriving with two complete strangers. He was a nice-looking young fellow, tall and spruce, with a touch of graying hair at his temples, though he could not have been much over thirty. Miss Farquhar went up to him and laid her hand on his arm. "'You must forgive my acting without consulting you, Philip,' she said. "'Let me introduce you to Monsieur Perrault, "'of whom you must often have heard, and his friend Captain Hastings.' Ridgway looked very astonished. "'Of course I have heard of you, Monsieur Perrault,' he said as he shook hands but I had no idea that Esme was thinking of consulting you about my—our—trouble. I was afraid you would not let me do it, Philip, said Miss Farquhar meekly. So you took care to be on the safe side, he observed, with a smile. I hope Monsieur Perrault will be able to throw some light on this extraordinary puzzle— for I confess, frankly, that I am nearly out of my mind with worry and anxiety about it. Indeed, his face looked drawn and haggard, and showed only too clearly the strain under which he was laboring. Well, well, said Poirot, let us lunch, and over lunch we will put our heads together and see what can be done. I want to hear Mr. Ridgway's story from his own lips." Whilst we discussed the excellent steak and kidney pudding of the establishment, Philip Ridgway narrated the circumstances leading to the disappearance of the Bonds. His story agreed with that of Miss Farquhar in every particular. When he had finished, Perrault took up the thread with a question. What exactly led you to discover that the Bonds had been stolen, Mr. Ridgway? He laughed rather bitterly. The thing stared me in the face, Monsieur Perrault. I couldn't have missed it. My cabin trunk was half out from under the bunk and all scratched and cut about where they tried to force the lock. But I understood that it had been opened with a key. That so, they tried to force it but couldn't, and in the end, they must have got it unlocked somehow or other. Hmm, curious, said Perrault. His eyes beginning to flicker with the green light I knew so well. Very curious. They waste much, much time trying to pry it open. And then, sapristi, they find that they have the key all the time. For each of Hub's locks are unique. That's just why they couldn't have had the key. It never left me day or night. You are sure of that? I can swear to it. And besides, if they had had the key or duplicate, why should they waste time trying to force an obviously unforcible lock? Ah, there is exactly the question we are asking ourselves. I venture to prophesy that the solution, if we ever find it, will hinge on that curious fact. I beg of you not to assault me if I ask you one more question. Are you perfectly certain that you did not leave the trunk unlocked? Philip Ridgway merely looked at him and Perrault gesticulated apologetically. Ah, but these things can happen, I assure you. Very well. The bonds were stolen from the trunk. What did the thief do with them? How did he manage to get ashore with them? (laughs) Aha, cried Ridgway. That's just it. How? Word was passed to the customs authorities, and every soul that left the ship was gone over with a tooth comb. And the bonds, I gather, made of a bulky package? Certainly they did. They could hardly have been hidden on board. And anyway... We know they weren't because they were offered for sale within half an hour of the Olympia's arrival, long before I got the cables going and the numbers sent out. One broker swears he bought some of them even before the Olympia got in. But you can't send bonds by wireless. Not by wireless, but did any tug come alongside? Only the official ones, and that was after the alarm was given when everyone was on the lookout. I was watching out myself for their being passed over to someone that way. My God, Monsieur Poirot, this thing will drive me mad. People are beginning to say I stole them myself. But you also searched on London, will not you? Asked Poirot gently. Yes. The young man stared at him in a puzzled manner. You do not catch my meaning, I see said Perrault, smiling. Now, I should like to make a few inquiries at the bank. Ridgway produced a card and scribbled a few words on it. Send this in and my uncle will see you at once. Perrault thanked him, bade farewell to Miss Farquhar, and together we started out for Threadneedle Street and the head office of the London and Scottish Bank On production of Ridgway's card, we were led through the labyrinth of counters and desks, skirting paying-in clerks and paying-out clerks, and up to a small office on the first floor where the joint general managers received us. They were two grave gentlemen who had grown gray in the service of the bank. Mr. Vavasor had a short white beard. Mr. Shaw was clean-shaven. I understand you are strictly a private inquiry agent, said Mr. Vavasor. We have, of course, placed ourselves in the hands of Scotland Yard. Inspector McNeil has charge of the case. A very able officer, I believe. I am sure of it, said Poirot politely. You will permit a few questions on your nephew's behalf about this lock? Who ordered it? from Hubs? I ordered it myself, said Mr. Shaw. I would not trust any clerk in the matter. As to the keys, Mr. Ridgway had one, and the other two are held by my colleague and myself, and no clerk has had access to them. Mr. Shaw turned inquiringly to Mr. Vavasor, I think I am correct in saying that they have remained in the safe where we placed them on the 23rd, said Mr. Vavasor. My colleague was unfortunately taken ill a fortnight ago. In fact, on the very day that Philip left us, he has only just recovered. Severe bronchitis is no joke to a man of my age, said Mr. Shaw ruefully but I am afraid Mr. Vavasor has suffered from the hard work entailed by my absence, especially with this unexpected worry coming on top of everything. Perrault asked a few more questions. I judged that he was endeavoring to gauge the exact amount of intimacy between uncle and nephew. Mr. Vavasor's answers were brief brief. His nephew was a trusted official of the bank and had no debts or money difficulties that he knew of. He had been entrusted with similar missions in the past. Finally, we were politely bowed out. I am disappointed, said Poirot as we emerged into the street. You hope to discover more? They are such stodgy old men. It is not their stodginess which disappoints me, mon ami, I do not expect to find in a bank manager a keen financier with an eagle glances, as your favorite works of fiction put it. No, I am disappointed in the case. It is too easy. Easy? Yes. Do you not find it almost childishly simple? You know who stole the bonds? I do. But then we must... Why? Do not confuse and fluster yourself, (laughs) Hastings? We are not going to do anything at present. But why? What are you waiting for? For the Olympia. She is due on her return trip from New York on Tuesday. If you know who stole the bonds, why wait? He may escape to a South Sea island where there is no extradition, no, mon ami. He would find life very uncongenial there. As to why I wait? Ah, bien, to the intelligence of Poirot, the case is perfectly clear. But, for the benefit of others not so greatly gifted by the good God, the Inspector McNeil, for instance, it would be as well to make a few inquiries to establish the facts. One must have consideration for those less gifted than oneself. Good Lord Perrault, do you know I'd give a considerable sum of money to see you make a thorough ass of yourself? just for once you're so confoundedly conceited do not enrage yourself Hastings. i observe that there are times when you almost detest me alas i suffer the penalties of greatness the little man puffed out his chest and sighed so comically that i was forced to laugh Tuesday saw us speeding to Liverpool in a first-class carriage. Perrault had obstinately refused to enlighten me as to his suspicions or certainties. He contented himself with expressing surprise that I, too, was not equally with the situation. I disdained to argue and entrenched my curiosity behind a rampart of pretended indifference. Once arrived, at the quay, alongside which lay the big transatlantic liner, Perot became brisk and alert. Our proceedings consisted in interviewing four successive stewards and inquiring after a friend of Perot's who had crossed to New York on the 23rd. An elderly gentleman wearing glasses, a great invalid, hardly moved out of his cabin. The description appeared to tally with one Mr. Ventnor who had occupied the cabin C-24 which was next to that of Philip Ridgway. Although unable to see how Perrault had deduced Mr. Ventnor's existence and personal appearance, I was keenly excited. Tell me, I cried, was this gentleman one of the first to land when you got to New York? The steward shook his head. No, indeed, sir, he was one of the last off the boat. I retired crestfallen and observed Perrault grinning at me. He thanked the steward, a note changed hands, and we took our departure. It's all very well, I remarked heatedly, but that last answer must have damped your precious theory. Grin as you please. As usual, you see nothing, Hastings. That last answer is, on the contrary, the coping-stone of my theory. I flung up my hands in despair. I give it up. When we were in the train, speeding towards London, Perrault wrote busily for a few minutes, sealing up the result in an envelope. This is for the good Inspector McNeil. We will leave it at Scotland Yard in passing, and then to the rendezvous restaurant, where I have asked Miss Esme Farquhar to do us the honor of dining with us. What about Ridgway? What about him? Asked Poirot with a twinkle. Why, you, you surely don't think you can't. The habit of incoherence is growing upon you, Hastings. As a matter of fact, I did think if Ridgeway had been the thief, which was perfectly possible, the case would have been charming, a piece of neat methodical work. But not so charming for Miss Farquhar. Possibly you are right. Therefore, all is for the best. Now, Astings, let us review the case. I can see that you are dying to do so. The sealed package is removed from the trunk and vanishes, as Miss Farquhar puts it, into thin air. We will dismiss the thin air theory, which is not practicable at the present stage of science and consider what is likely to have become of it. Everyone asserts the incredibility of its being smuggled ashore. Yes, but we know you may know Hastings. I do not. I take the view that since it seemed incredible, it was incredible. Two possibilities remain. It was hidden on board. Also rather difficult. Or it was thrown overboard. With a cork on it, do you mean? Without a cork. I stared. But if the bonds were thrown overboard, they couldn't have been sold in New York. I admire your logical mind, Hastings, the bonds were sold in New York, therefore, they were not thrown overboard. You see where that leads us. Where we were when we started? Jamme de la vie, if the package was thrown overboard, and the bonds were sold in New York, the package could not have contained the bonds. Is there any evidence that the package did not contain the bonds? Remember, Mr. Ridgway never opened it from the time it was placed in his hands in London. Yes, but then Perrault waved an impatient hand. Allow me to continue. The last moment that the bonds are seen as bonds is in the office, Of the london and scottish bank on the morning of the 23rd they reappear in new york half an hour after the olympia gets in and according to one man whom nobody listens to actually before she gets in supposing then that they have never been on the olympia at all is there any other way they could get to new york Yes. The Gigantic leaves Southampton on the same day as the Olympia, and she holds the record for the Atlantic. Mailed by the Gigantic, the bonds would be in New York the day before the Olympia arrived. All is clear. The case begins to explain itself. The sealed packet is only a dummy, and the moment of its substitution must be in the office in the bank. It would be an easy matter for any of the three men present to have prepared a duplicate package which could be substituted for the genuine one. J.B.N., the bonds are mailed to a confederate in New York with instructions to sell as soon as the Olympia is in. But someone must travel on the Olympia to engineer for the supposed moment of the robbery. But why? Because if Ridgeway merely opens the packet and finds it is a dummy, suspicion flies at once to London. No, the man on board in the cabin next door does his work pretends to force the lock in an obvious manner so as to draw immediate attention to the theft, really unlocks the trunk with a duplicate key, throws the package overboard, and waits until the last to leave the boat. Naturally, he wears glasses to conceal his eyes, and is an invalid since he does not want to run the risk of meeting Ridgway. steps ashore in New York and returns by the first boat available. But who? Which was he? The man who had a duplicate key. The man who ordered the lock. The man who has not been severely ill with bronchitis at his home in the country. That stodgy old man, Mr. Shaw, there are criminals in high places sometimes, my friend. Ah, here we are. Mademoiselle, I have succeeded. You permit? And beaming, Poirot kissed the astonished girl lightly on either cheek.